Well, it is a joy to see you guys. I know some of you guys are slowly filtering back into town. So for you guys who arrived early before classes, it is fun to see you guys this morning. Uh, if this is your first time to Grace, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at Southwood, and we are thrilled to kick off the spring with you guys. So if you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 1 this morning, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is a book in the Old Testament. It is uh, after Jeremiah and after Ezekiel. So it is a medium-range book. Keep kind of flipping in. You'll find it. As you're turning there, I'll just tell you guys, Marcy and I uh, got back Friday night from East Asia. We were on one of our vision trips that went this winter to East Asia and had an amazing trip. Amazing time. I got to see uh, God bring five different students to the Lord for the first time. Uh, our team got to share the gospel a ton of times with students. It was amazing. Uh, Marcy and I actually got to uh, travel even further out to see kind of some different areas. So it's just amazing to see what God's doing. Uh, also a great reminder of what it feels like to be a minority in a people group, to be a minority in a different culture. And so I don't know if you've ever had that moment, if you've ever felt like you were different, if you felt like you were a minority, but I'll tell you guys, our trip to East Asia this winter kind of reminded me of the first time I had ever been overseas. Uh, my first time ever overseas was the summer after my senior year, and we went to a Muslim country. And my first 48 hours in this country, I will never forget. Uh, Blake Jennings, our teaching pastor, and I were both leading different teams that summer to this Muslim country. And we had gone the first day in country to buy a bunch of electronics. We bought all these TVs. We bought a bunch of DVD players because we wanted to show the Jesus film to the students that we were going to interact with. And so we bought all of these electronics, and we paid American cash, which had a better exchange rate and was kind of <laughs> illegal at the time. Uh, and so we're coming back with all of these goods on our shoulders and we kind of have, you know, we're in a foreign country. We're not really sure of our situation. We're kind of looking over our shoulders, not really knowing what to expect, whether someone's going to come out of nowhere in an alley and take all of this or whether the police is going to come get us. We have no idea what to expect. We finally get back to our apartment and everything is great. We grab some uh, coke, kind of take a, a moment just to kind of rest, catch our breath, and then Blake takes off. Takes off, and about two minutes later, uh, there's a knock at the door, and I go to the door expecting it's Blake, expecting that he forgot something. And in this foreign country, you had an inner metal door and you had an outer metal door. It was kind of intense, all right? And so I open the inner door, and as I'm reaching for the outer door to open it wide to let whoever's on the outside in, all of a sudden I hear not English, but I hear Russian being barked on the other side of the door, and I wig out. Just absolutely wig out. I immediately conclude that the police, they've arrested Blake Jennings, God bless his soul, all right? And they've come to arrest me and take all of our stuff, all right? And I do what any brave man does at that moment. I run as far away from the door as possible, grab the other roommates there and shake uncontrollably and we just hold one another. We're scared out of our minds. I will tell you, I've probably come never so close in my life to just wetting myself. All right? I was just terrified, okay? Absolutely terrified. And at some point, I don't know what we're thinking, but we realize we have cash throughout the entire apartment. And so we begin to army crawl through the apartment to hide the cash, okay? I guess we're thinking like there's a, a, a team of police outside. There are like guns pointed in the windows. I don't know what we're doing, but it was the most harebrained 20 minutes of my entire life. We finally realize they can't get through the door, so it's okay. And so we go a little closer to the door because they're still yelling and they're still pounding for like 20 minutes straight. So we finally collect our wits about us and we realize that it's no longer Russian, but it's English. And we realize that two of our other teammates, while they had been on the street, they had learned two Russian words and thought it would be hilarious to scream at us. <laughs> And then it just evolved from there, okay? We thought they were, they were police, and then we weren't opening the door, but they knew we were there, so then they thought we were playing a prank on them, and so they're getting upset. It was just a wheels-off kind of entry moment into a foreign country, all right? 
But there's something about being a minority in a culture at large that just throws us. Maybe your entire life here in Texas or maybe in the Bible Belt, you've always felt like you were the majority, which really means that the moment you step overseas or the moment you step into a different setting or a different cultural setting, it really throws you because to be the minority in a culture really at times causes some of us to want to huddle up and hide out. And in Daniel chapter one, we're going to watch an interesting moment in Daniel's life and in the life of the nation of Israel, because we're going to see the nation of Israel go from majority status to minority status in an instant. And in that moment, we're going to see Daniel navigate through Daniel chapter one, and he's going to navigate in such a way to teach us what we're to do as a minority in a broader culture. And what he does here in Daniel one is going to be fascinating for us and absolutely helpful as we begin a new semester. That's why I wanted you guys to see Daniel one as we begin the spring. Notice Daniel chapter one. Notice where our text begins. Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one. Notice the text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. In Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2 open, what we find for Daniel and for the nation of Israel is that they were a minority now. That in an instant, historically, they will go from majority status to minority status just like that. The text tells us that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and he lays waste to Judah, to Jerusalem, and he captures the nation of Israel. And what Babylon will do as a foreign policy is they will deport and disperse conquered peoples throughout their kingdom so that they're going to be easier to control. In a moment, Israel goes from majority to minority just like that. And because of that, notice the changes. They're going to be a people that are now going to be powerless and placeless. Notice again, verse 2, notice what all that they lose. Verse 2 tells us that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels in the treasury of this Babylonian God. By verse 2, the nation of Israel has now lost their king, they've lost their treasury, and they lost their God and their place of worship. In an instant, they are powerless powerless politically, powerless economically, and now powerless in terms of their spirituality. They don't control their circumstances anymore. They are a minority in a new culture. It's not just that they're powerless, they're also placeless. The text tells us that they're dispersed and they're taken to the land of Shinar. And if you know your Old Testament, Shinar is, we first find it in Genesis chapter 10, where you have a worldwide rebellion against God. It is a place of immorality. It is a place of sin. It is a place of rebellion against God. And the question that will frame the nation of Israel's experience from this moment on in the book of Daniel is this. How does your faith work itself out when you are a minority in a culture? How does your faith work itself out? How do you live out your faith when you are a minority in a culture at large? I think that question that frames the book of Daniel is a wonderful question as we step into a new semester. As much as we, as we know Jesus Christ here in the Bible Belt at Texas A&M or at Blinn, feel like we maybe are not the minority, if you know Jesus Christ, statistically, you are a minority. And when you leave this city, you leave this campus, and you step wherever else you're going to go upon graduation, you will definitely be a minority. And so the question that will frame these people's existence is one that we've got to consider, and it's this. How do you live out your faith when you are a minority and a culture at large? What do you do? Because we have a tendency to huddle up and hide out. But that's not exactly what Daniel is going to do at all, which is why I love Daniel chapter 1. 
And the first place that Daniel is going to wrestle with his minority status is going to be in a setting that's incredibly familiar and incredibly appropriate for you guys. Notice verse 3. Notice where he's specifically going to be a minority. It's going to be in the university. Verse 3, notice the text. Then the king, of or, uh, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Verses 3 and 5 unpack for Daniel and for his friends and for the youth of Israel that they're a minority, not just in a culture, but they're specifically a minority in a university setting. And Daniel's response in that university setting, I think, is going to be a wonderful model for you and I to put our minds upon as we begin a new semester. What is Daniel going to do as a minority in this university? What he's going to do is going to be phenomenal and hopefully provides you and I a model for how we enter a new semester and how we handle ourselves as a minority in a university <laughs> campus. Let me show you the specifics, though, of his university educational experience. Notice the first, in terms of new admissions, I want you guys to notice who is there. He says in verse 3, or verse uh, three that uh, they were to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Uh, if you were in high school, this is the student body presidents of the world, all right? This is the social elite, all right? These are the people who were uh, my, maybe minorities, but they had all kinds of backing. Not just them, but else you find youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking. These are your athletes and your cheerleaders, all right? None of which I was, all right? My group comes next, all right? Uh, these, some would call them the scholars. Other of you would call them the nerds, all right? Uh, but here's what the text says. There were those who were not just good-looking, but some who were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. This was my group in high school, all right? Every kind of group within the youth of Israel is going to be brought into this educational system. And what is it they're going to learn specifically? Uh, what is it they learn? It's going to be the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The goal that the Babylonians had for this people group from the nation of Israel and the youth that went into this university setting for three years is that by the time they emerged, by the time they left, they would in a sense be culturally Babylonians. They would understand the literature of the Babylonians, they would understand the language of the Babylonians, and they would think, they would act, and they would in a sense be Babylonian. This is a way for them to indoctrinate them into the culture. This is a way for them to take this minority and bring them into to be a part of the larger group so as to have control over them. All right? And the educational system didn't just impact the classroom, but it also extended out of the classroom. And for some of you guys, every time some academic advisor at A&M or some professor mentions the other education, you're like, that's what I'm majoring in because you have a 2.0 in the classroom, but outside the classroom, you're crushing it, all right? Uh, well, in Babylon, they will have not just an education in the classroom, but they will also have one out of the classroom as well. Notice again verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. In this university setting, in this educational setting, they dictated what the students ate and what they drank. The educational system was not just in the classroom, but it was also outside of the classroom as well. And it wasn't just their diet, it wasn't just their edible existence, but it was also their faith and their religion. Notice verse 6. Now among them from the sons of Israel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Daniel, whose name originally meant 
Let's see here. Daniel's name originally meant, my judge is God. It gets the name Belteshazzar, which means the Babylonian god Bel and Bel's prince. All right, he gets a new name. Hananiah, whose name meant Yahweh has shown grace, becomes Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Mishael, whose name meant who is, who is what God is, becomes Abinego, I cannot say that, Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. These guys get new names because they're being exchanged to have a new religion now. As they leave Israel, as they leave Judah, they're getting a new diet, they're getting new language, new literature, and they're getting a new God. What's in a name? For you and I, typically, we don't think names are that big of a deal. I was laughing even as we were in East Asia this winter, interacting with uh, East Asians, and they tell you what their English name is. I had a friend whose name, English name, he named himself Antonio Banderas. And he talked like that, and he put Tabasco on everything he ever ordered, which he thought that was just what Antonio Banderas did. I don't know. It was crazy. Uh, I remember meeting one East Asian girl one time, and she literally said, my name, my English name is gorgeous. We're like, well, okay, you know, that's interesting, you know, says something about you. Okay, I got it, you know, and so there are something about names. They are significant. They're usually not that significant to us. Uh, my family name, uh, my legal name is Huey. That was my name passed from my father and my grandfather, a name that I typically try to hide at all costs from, okay? Uh, but typically names for us maybe don't mean that much. But in most cultures, especially Eastern cultures, there's great significance in a name. And so for them, as they're given a new name, it's meant to imply a change of religion and change of faith. Now for you, as you step back on to a spring semester, as you get a syllabi, it's going to blow your minds on Tuesday and you're going to have syllabus shock, the reality is you're not probably going to get a new name, right? Uh, Blinn or A&M, they don't rename you, all right? They don't dictate your faith or your religion, all right? But I can guarantee you, whether you're at Blinn or A&M, I can guarantee you your educational experience will move beyond the classroom. It's not just in the classroom. As great as your professors will be, there are going to be aspects of the university life that are going to dictate and try to shape you and train you, not just in the classroom, but even out of the classroom. The question is, how does your faith work itself out in that setting? For Daniel, that, faith was incre- or that setting was incredibly hostile to his faith. Incredibly hostile to his faith. And the question he'll have to wrestle with is one that you and I are going to have to wrestle with this semester as well, and it's this. How does my faith work itself out in a university setting? How does my faith work itself out on campus? Does my faith have any connection whatsoever with my degree, with my schooling, and with my education? Sometimes we like to separate out our world and say, my faith has nothing to do with my education. That's not true at all. Your faith has a lot to do with your education. And I want you guys to see Daniel's response because Daniel's response here in this educational arena, in this educational world, I think says a lot to us and can help shape a model for us of how we're to navigate with our faith as a minority in a university setting. I want you guys to notice he's going to do two things. One is going to be very familiar to you and one is probably going to surprise you. He's going to do two things. First, he's going to do this. Notice verse, um, verse 8. Notice what happens. Notice where we go. Verse 8, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. The first thing that Daniel is going to pursue is going to be purity. As a minority in a culture that was hostile to his faith, as he stepped into a university setting, the first priority Daniel is going to have is going to be his purity. He's going to resolve to not defile himself. That when that educational experience asked something of him that crossed his faith and that was going to move him contrary to his faith, he chose and he resolved that he would not defile himself. 
that resolution came at actually great risk as well. Notice verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your face looking more haggard than the yous who are your own age? Then, he would, then you would make me forfeit, forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. The educational experience he had that was out of the classroom was going to force him to be defiled and he was morally convicted against it. And he chose, even though everyone was moving in one direction, even his authorities were moving him in one direction, he chose and he said, no. I will not be defiled. And that choice came at incredible risk and incredible cost. Martin Luther has said this, I think it's an incredible quote. He says, there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor popular because his conscience tells him it is right. As you guys return from winter break and as you guys enter into a spring semester, uh, honestly, for some of you guys, as you think about purity, you may need to step into the spring asking forgiveness for what you saw in your winter break. But in the midst of the space that you had, in the midst of the time that you had, it may be likely that you made some choices over the winter break that you knew were wrong. That you already feel the Spirit of God bringing conviction about wrestling with you and calling you forward to say, you're going to have to put this down. If that's where you've been, let me challenge you to say, hey, before you get into classes on Tuesday, take some time with the Lord on Monday and say, Lord, forgive me for where I've been. Help me to draw a line and in your power and in your grace to not go there again. To know that you have something better for me. The first step Daniel has as he steps into this educational experience is he chooses purity. He's going to be distinct from his classmates. He's going to look different and he's going to act different. And what much of what purity is, is a call for us to not engage in where the world is going, realizing that it doesn't offer what it promises. And for some of us, that commitment to purity is going to ask for an element of confession as we look back at our winner. And for some of us, it's just a pursuit of the Lord to say, Lord, in the midst of the pressures and the peer pressure and the things and the momentum that comes in this educational world and the friends that I have, help me to be re-resolved to not go in the ways that they go. Help me to look different. Help me to be distinct. Help me to be courageous to be distinct. For some of us, that's the first step. Maybe it's a step of forgiveness and, and, and conflict resolution with the Lord. For some of us, it's just simply asking the Lord for the strength and the grace to maintain our purity in the midst of all that college brings us as we step into a new semester. I don't know where you are this morning, but that's step one. What I love about Daniel is not just his resolve to purity, though, but I love what it comes with it because purity alone as a step is not enough. For some of us, there's been an overemphasis on purity. And what it's led is to a distinction, but also separation, so that we're of no good to the community and the campus that we're a part of. It's interesting, one of my favorite quotes comes from a guy named Don Eberly as he looks at the American church, and this is what he says, thinking about the church's relationship to culture at large. This is what he says. Christians have understandably dismayed that the culture has become unhitched from its Judeo-Christian roots. Saying the church looks at the culture and says it's gone so far in terms of sin and immorality that the church has just said in its purity it's going to pull back and it's going to retreat. However, they refuse to acknowledge that in literally millions of decisions made by Christians themselves, this unhitching was produced by a massive retreat from the intellectual, cultural, and philanthropic life of the nation. 
And while evangelicals count millions of members, the number of evangelicals serving at the top of America's powerful culture-shaping institutions, like a major university or a publishing house, could be seated in a single school bus. In many ways, the American church, and for you and I, we've got purity down in some cases. We have no problem being distinct. We have no problem retreating. We have no problem pulling away and looking different. But what we don't have is what Daniel is going to do next, because he's going to pair purity with something else, and it's going to be that combo that's going to have such an attractive impact. Because purity alone If it causes a retreat where we huddle up and we hide out, it alone is often offensive and it's separating in such a way that our life often has no impact on the world and the campus and the community that we're a part of and the city that we're a part of. And what Daniel's going to do is he's going to pair a pursuit of purity with also a pursuit of excellence. Daniel's going to have purity in the educational arena, but he's also going to have excellence. And he's going to have it to a degree that it might surprise you. Notice where the text goes next. Notice verse 17. Notice how he fares in a university setting. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. When it came finals time and it came grades times, these guys crushed it. These guys had no parallel in terms of their classmates. In fact, you're going to get the statement that goes even further in verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in all of his realm. Ah. Daniel and his friends resolve to be pure in the midst of this educational arena, but in their purity, it's not an excuse to run away and consider it irrelevant to their life. In their purity, they also excel in the classroom. And I will tell you guys, as I listen to students year after year, there seems to be a desire to take your faith and to take school and to separate them. As if your faith is irrelevant to school. As if, you're, as if school is a distraction from what God has for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your calling is going to be worked out in the context of school. The kingdom of God is not a distraction with your degree. It is where your degree is going to work itself out. And what we're going to do this morning, what we're going to do for the next six weeks in a series that we're going to unpack, is we're going to begin to change some of your perspective on school and even on a career one day. Because the campus and the classroom is not a distraction from the kingdom of God. It is very much a place where the kingdom of God is going to be worked out. And one of the things I want you guys to do as you step into a new semester is to not see the syllabus and to not see school as a distraction from your walk with God, but as a venue where your walk with God is going to be fleshed out and lived out and where you're going to be sanctified. And the challenges that you have with a professor and the work projects that you're going to have, that you would do school in a way that would excel. And that the day would be over in which unbelieving classmates look at the Christians in the work projects and say, why is it that the Christians are the the ones who are the biggest slackers? That day ought to be over. (laughs) And that as you step into the classroom, that you would step in and you'd be faithful with all that you have, realizing that God has put you there and has a purpose for you there. And that place and that syllabus is not a distraction from his purpose, but is very much an embodiment of his purpose. Okay? That may be a real shift for you, which is why I like Daniel chapter 1. His purity doesn't lead to a retreat from the classroom, 
but his purity leads to a kind of uh, distinction in which he engages still in the classroom. And not only does he engage, but he engages with excellence. I want to challenge you guys as you step into a new semester that you would have stepped into this semester with excellence. Not seeing the classroom and the syllabus as a distraction from the call of God in your life, but as an embodiment of the call of God in your life. All right? Doesn't mean you've got to have straight A's. <laughs> it just means as you step into the semester that you're going to commit to give your all to school. To say, Lord, what is it you have for me in this venue and how can I be faithful to you here? And how can I be a great witness for you in this context? Because here's what happens. Daniel's opportunity and Daniel's platform as a student leads to another platform because notice verse 21. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king because Daniel is going to enter the service of the king and he's going to lead that nation in the entirety of that previous king's reign. And because of Daniel's performance in school, he's going to be given an opportunity in the workplace. And that opportunity politically will allow him to save lives. We'll see him be a huge reason why a whole king, a pagan king, comes to know Christ. And will also lead to the improvement of the city and the nation at large. Because of his faithfulness in school. Your faithfulness in the platform as a student will lead to your opportunity in the workplace later. And what we're going to do for the next six weeks as we walk away from this morning is we're going to uh, walk through a series uh, which we've titled Faith at Work. We're going to walk through a book by Tim Keller uh, in which he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. And what we want to do for the next six weeks, thinking not just about faith and school, but thinking about faith and career or faith and work. And what I want to do for the next six weeks is unpack for you the connection that your faith and your career will one day have. Just as your faith is not a distraction in the classroom, it's also not a distraction in the workplace. But your faith in your career, your faith in your life as a student, your faith in your life one day as an employee are intimately integrated in ways that for many of us we have not begun to even unpack. And so for the next six weeks, I'll tell you guys, I'm incredibly excited for where we're going to go. We're going to unpack some ideas that may be brand new for you guys. We're going to walk through Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, and begin to try to unpack this for you guys so that you begin to get a vision now for where you're going to be down the road. I've told our table hosts this, and I'll tell you guys this as well. In interacting with alumni the last couple of years, I think we begin to realize that we've not prepared you guys as students well for graduation in the real world. Because we've not begun to really unpack for you the connection of faith and your career. And as much as your faith and your career are connected, so is it that your faith and your student life is connected. They're going to be parallel. And so I'll tell you guys, I'm incredibly excited for where we're going to go, because really how God is going to work in your life will be as much in your career as any other element of your life. You're going to spend more time in a workplace than you ever will in your marriage, probably. All right? The amount of time that you spend in the workplace will be one of the greatest contributions that you will make with your life to the city and even to the kingdom in whatever vocation that you have. And the divide between the sacred and the secular is one that we're going to blow away and we're going to bring about an integration of faith with vocation in whatever vocation God may call you to. That's where we're going to go. Next six weeks in a series, Faith at Work. And to do that for you guys, I want to give you guys a quick video that will preview for you guys where we're going to go. So you guys, I'm incredibly indebted to Tim Keller and his book, Every Good Endeavor. Also incredibly uh, indebted to Keller's Church, Redeemer Presbyterian, and their Center for Faith and Work. And this video is a little bit of a preview, not just of the book, but a preview of this idea and where we're going to go. And so after this video, I'll pray for us and we'll get to our tables, all right? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for a new semester that you have in front of us. And just as the video talked about the fact that work matters, so we want to confess this morning that school matters. 
Um, and Lord, as we open a new semester, as we walk into s- classes on Tuesday and Wednesday, and as we look at syllabi that begin to redefine our life in many ways this spring semester, Lord, I pray that you'd give us vision to see your hand in the classroom, to see your call and your sense of place that you've put us as students here on this campus at Blinn or at A&M. And I pray that you'd give us renewed vision for that. You'd help us to see specifically, Lord, that the classroom and the syllabus and the professors are not a distraction from your call in our life, but they're very much an embodiment of where you've put us and where you've called us to excel and where you've called us to be trained and to be transformed. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to see the classroom as a place of our sanctification and not a distraction to our sanctification. Lord, I pray that you allow us to walk in purity and in excellence this semester, Lord, not just in school, but as we begin to look forward even to one day to be in a workplace Thank you for these table hosts. I thank you for their incredible experiences that they'll be able to steward for us this spring. And Lord, we look forward to what you're going to teach us. Father, I pray as we step into a new semester, Lord, may you call us, may you direct us, may you give us a vision for what you have. May you give us a faith that would stretch to our imaginations and our sense of where you're calling and leading us, Lord. And I pray that you allow us to be obedient to you, that we would be faithful to you, that we would walk in purity where you've called us to walk in purity, and that we would walk in excellence where you've called us to walk in excellence, Lord. Help us to see those things. Help us to merge those two things, a purity that is distinct and an excellence that engages and that contributes to the larger order and the larger culture. Lord, help us to see in some new ways that you would reimagine for us our careers, that you would reimagine for us this spring, even school itself, Lord. Help us to see differently. Help us to live differently, Lord. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, the rest of the morning is you guys at tables, excited for conversations, excited to reconnect over the winter break. We're so grateful to have you guys back. Looking forward to where we're going to go this spring semester, all right?